Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast in which I get the opportunity to talk in a little bit more detail with my guests because they're sitting at my kitchen table and we're having coffee and having a chat about the things that interest me about these people and hopefully will interest you as well. Now, today's guest is somebody who I have been interviewing for over 25 years at this stage during my career. He started as a trade union agitator, strikes on the railway lines back around the turn of the century, but he has since become very involved in many social justice campaigns, particularly on behalf of the homeless and also looking after immigrants coming into the country. He is an absolutely fascinating character who pulls no punches in his opinions, but is always really interesting to talk to and particularly surprising at times as well, as you, I think you'll find in how he describes his ongoing battle with cancer. Hope you enjoy Brendan Ogle. Brendan Ogle, thank you very much for joining me at my kitchen table for the Magnified podcast. Um, amongst there's been many millionaires have sat at this kitchen table talking about their business careers you must be the first trade unionist that I've had here I'm certainly not a millionaire anyway man <laughs> how are you because I know I've been in touch with you over the last year or so and you haven't been well you had been ill will you talk about that to us of course yeah um, first of all thanks for thanks for the chat Matt uh, looking forward to it um, I'm good uh, as I said to somebody else recently I'm a lot better than I was a year ago um, yeah, um, I don't think it's any secret now. Um, I, I've ha- I had cancer um, and um, I'm out of it now. I'm out, finished the treatment just over a year. So I'm a slimline version of my former self, which is, well. which is good. Um, put, on a li- put a little bit of weight back on. Um, my voice has changed a bit. Uh, my singing career is over, I'm afraid. So a huge loss to the Irish music industry. Um, nothing I can do about that, lads. Um, I feel good physically. In fact, I was away there for, for a month or so um, and I, I commented to, to, when I was away to myself and others, I hadn't felt as well in about 15 years. I'm 55 now, don't mind saying that. So for long before I was sick, I hadn't felt as well. So I don't know if that's the weight loss, if it was the temperature, the food I was eating, the exercise I was getting on a daily basis when I was away. Um, so I feel great physically. You know, the, the cancer I had was, was, was serious. The prognosis was up and down, you know. It was, wasn't a little thing. Um, but uh, the, the recovery has been beyond expectations. That's good. So long may I continue. How did you cope with it mentally? Well, that's a good question because it's a bit of a, it, it, you know, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a blur and it isn't. Um, the, the last few years to me are all a kind of a, a stew of grief and pain. My, in, in 2020, uh, a sister that I was particularly close to, my older sister Breege, was diagnosed with brain cancer and um, came to live, she lived in Dundalk, so she came to stay with, with us in Swords while she was doing her treatment in the Beaumont. And um, she passed away after 11 months. So that was, you know, up close and personal not just somebody that I was so connected to, but to be so close, springing breach to the treatment every day. And, um, and then six weeks after that, my mum passed away. Um, of, uh, although, you know, people were reluctant to say it at the time, I think she was probably the fifth or sixth person in Ireland that died of COVID in, in March 2020. Uh, and then um, 
it was about a year after that that I was diagnosed with cancer. So I found myself going back to the same hospital, St. Luke's in the Beaumont, the same radiologists, the same, the same beds, the same beds is the wrong word, the same pods, radio, radiography pods, and the same staff that I had gone with with Breed when she was sick. So that was a bit, how do you cope with that? Um, I didn't think I could cope with it. Uh, first of all, on the medical side, I cope with it thanks to the fantastic help. And I, they're not just words I throw out there. Like the doctors I met, uh, James Paul O'Neill and uh, Orla McCardle and all their staffs, they got me through. Um, I didn't want to take the treatment. Um, I didn't have a positive attitude. So there's no point in me sitting here and... Did, you know? Sir, that surprises me because I've known you over 20 years now at this stage from interviewing you at various times and I would have always perceived you to have been a fighter that you see something and you go and you take it on so to hear you say that when you're confronted with a diagnosis of cancer that you didn't want to take it on with the available treatments comes as a surprise to me The person that comes into your studio, Mash and sits down in your studio is not always the person who walks up to it and who walks out of it. Uh, in fact, in my case, uh, quite often it is a completely different person. Um, and that's a general thing. You know, life has, has, has struggles. Yeah. Um, and when you go into a studio to talk or talk to a journalist or talk to a worker or talk to an employer, you know, it's like, I suppose it's like playing a football match. You put your football boots on, you put your shin guards on, you go out in the pitch and you get stuck in. Uh, it might not reflect what's going on in your life at all. Yeah. That's, that's particularly the case in this case because, as I said, Breege had passed away. Breege was some scrapper now. Um, and she didn't believe up until, you know, three or four weeks before she passed away that she was going to pass away. Even though all of the indicators weren't good from an early stage, she, she had such, a, such an attitude. Um, so when, when, when it went for her the way it went... Not only had I seen somebody with such a positive attitude up close and personal lose that battle, but, and I don't think, that, I don't think my wife or my kids will mind me saying this because they know the relationship I had with my sister. Um, the biggest support I have had in my life was gone as well. So if, so if you told me five years ago, Brendan, you're going to get cancer, I'd say, I'll be all right, Breed, you'll be there. Because me and her had this, I couldn't even describe it. Like if something was going wrong, wrong in my life in Dublin or wherever I might be, and, and I'm a bit upset or a bit annoyed about something, and I hadn't talked to Breach for a couple of weeks, I'd get a phone call, kind of, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's as if she, you know, she could nearly read my mind, you know? Uh, and, and it was worked both ways. So when I got the diagnosis, I, had, I, had, I was on the floor before I got sick. Yeah. Uh, I had also been back in Unite and, and, uh, for a year and a half. I, I remember my mum passed away, and I came back into Unite then, and it was my job to manage, from a workplace point of view, the pandemic access to the office, um, you know, checkpoints, guards, letters, uh, and, you know, United is an organisation which operates in five jurisdictions with different guidelines. Britain were in their um, herd immunity phase, where we were in a complete lockdown phase. To say I was getting little support would be an understatement. And at this stage, did you believe that your mother had died because of COVID? Yeah. So yeah, that then would have been, and that would have informed your... Ah, I was rigorous. Rigorous is an understatement in terms of my enforcement of the guidelines. And that caused a lot of, a lot, a lot of tension in the workplace. So that had gone on for over a year uh, after the death of my sister and my mother. And I was basically there alone in the office, managed, kind of managed the situation, getting guff. And then um, when I got, so when I got diagnosed, I was at a low ebb anyway. 
Yeah. Um, and when uh, Professor O'Neill uh, told me, I, I, I made a mistake and went to my own. So I got that news on my own. Stupid thing to do. Don't ever do it. If anyone's listening to this, if you're someone that can bring, you bring what you bring them. Um, but I went to my own and um, then when he told me I had cancer and he started talking, you know, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, I just said, no, you don't. You're not doing that. And he said, what do you mean I'm not doing that? I said, you're not doing that to me. I'm not, I'm not interested in not having it. And he says, why? So I told him about my sister and uh, he asked me what cancer she had and I described it. I couldn't tell you the name. I couldn't tell you the name now. It's a very complicated name. But I described it and he knew what it was. He explained that mine was completely different, uh, which I knew anyway. And um, so then I said to him, well, if I don't do it, because I felt great, you know, physically great now. I was walking maybe every day. I'd walk down to the, to the lighthouse maybe five or six days a week in Sandy Mount there. Um, so what's that, 10 kilometres? I'd do that three or four times a week. Uh, had a few pints, whatever. Um, I could see the tumours in my neck. I had two tumours in my neck. And, um, but I felt, so I said, if I don't believe you, if I, t- if I say, you know, I'm going back to my office now um, and I'm going for me a few pints tonight, what's going to happen? And he says, uh, well, in about six months, and we can't be precise, but in about six months, it will have spread to your lungs um, and we'll be having a different conversation then. It, will be, it won't be about potential treatment and cure. It will be a different conversation. So I just says, you're direct. Said, well, if you ask me a direct question, I'll give you a direct answer. So, you know, a few conversations later, uh, I, did, I did obviously go for it. And I have to say they were, they were fantastic. That's not to say that it's, it, that, that, that it's, it's, it's everybody's gig. And, and, and I met people uh, in St. Luke's because you're going in there for... Also, the issue I had was Breach as well because I knew where I was. I knew where this is going to happen. I'd sat in those seats waiting for her to come out. Um, and I couldn't figure out how I was going to drive every morning or get driven, but I, ended, I was able to drive myself in the end. Drive every morning, wait, meet the same, as I say, radiographers and staff, and there's only four cubicles. Like, so you're going to be in the same. And you're on your own. When they close that door and press that switch, you can't move. And you're on your own. You can't move a millimetre. And you're on your own till they come back in. There's no hiding place. Uh, I didn't know I was going to do that. But, you know, it, so I did. And it wasn't as bad as I had anticipated. Kind of, you get into a zone. And um, the staff are fantastic. Just, I mean, they don't just mean the professors. You know, obviously, they are hugely talented. But just, just the people you meet, the people that, that, that you meet in reception. The, but then you, the, there's people waiting beside you. And you become aware um, that there's no selection process for this thing you know there's no class issue there's no gender issue there's no sexuality issue there's no race issue there's no age issue in fact um and it's completely random who gets it and it's also by and large completely random who survives it you know it's just and some of the people who sat with me have survived it and some of the people who sat with me haven't and people reach out to you as well i can only see Imagine how stressful the whole situation might have been. But what about your care, though? Because I think it would be fair to say that you would be known as being very critical of the state. 
So how did you actually find the experience, both for yourself and for your sister, as in getting health care from the state? Well, I'm not going to duck that question, but before I answer it, I want to say this. You're always saying that to me. I uh, always say what to you? I'm very critical of the state. Thank God somebody is. I'm not saying yeah. you shouldn't be critical of the state. I'm just stating as a fact we would know you as somebody who is critical yeah, of the I state. Cha- I like to challenge the establishment. I know that. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I don't, and, I, and, and I think I've been reflecting on this because all this stuff puts you in a very reflective mode. And, 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 I, and I, I regret that that... Don't, don't interrupt me now. I regret that that stands out. That there's somebody, one of few people, who we know will challenge the state. It should be normal. Uh, and it should be normal, not just in social media and all that craziness. It should be normal in the mainstream. It should be normal in the, main, in, the, in the mainstream of politics. It should be normal. There's too much consensus in this country. That's another subject that I'm not going to duck your question. But just to put it in that context, for as long as there's breath in my body, I hope that in some way, and you know what I do, what I've done for all these years, I consider myself an advocate. That's what I consider myself. It just happens to be I do this now. But I think I could advocate for most things. <laughs> Big head there. But um, I found the, the treatment that, I, that, that Breed got, first of all, um, the care and the compassion was par excellence. I think cancer, my experience of cancer services in this country is that they are, they are, they are only superb. That's my experience. And even though Breach had a bad outcome, I think in general, and I don't want to get too personal now, it was a few ups and downs, but I think in general, uh, Breach's husband and Breach's kids would agree with me on that in relation to her as well, in general. I do, however, know people who may be ill at the moment who mightn't say that. And I know in my own, when I was doing my own treatment, I had some wobbles and I had some anger. Um, and I had some periods where I opted out of treatment on one occasion, in the middle of it at one stage, signed myself out of hospital and was quite, if you were talking to me that day, <laughs> you might have got a different view of the cancer services, but that would have been unfair. So when you're in that, you're in a war, you know. And cancer can't always be beaten. Cancer, no matter, that's the point. Cancer no matter what the doctors or nurses do, they sister. can't save you. Here's a brother and a sister. I drink, I love a pint. Um, I used to smoke. Some people would say I don't, I haven't lived the healthiest lifestyle ever, diet and all that sort of stuff. Breed was into spinning, she was into walking, she didn't drink, she never smoked. Here's her brother and a sister, both of whom get cancer, one comes through it and one passes away. So some people won't survive. But I found the cancer services, once you're in them, and my, my GP got me in. When I sat down in my GP's office, he looked at me and he says, I think you have cancer. Not too many GPs will say that to you. Are we qualified enough or confident enough so he had me on a kind of a treadmill very quick and I got in very quick. And I now know that if I hadn't got in so quick, if my GP hadn't been on the ball, if I hadn't been able to get to see my GP, if I didn't have a GP and there's thousands of people out there who don't, I'd be gone. So my experience once I was in there was superb. OK, but that brings me to the question is if we can do cancer care well and by international standards we actually do it well why can't we run the rest of the health system along those lines as well well i, I have a phrase I, I have a phrase that i that i say and 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 this will bring bring you back to where we started i suppose um if everybody in the country everybody regardless of class or regardless of wealth or regardless of background or, or privilege or whatever if everybody had to rely in all circumstances on the same health system, we would have a bloody good health system. 
The reason why we can't is because we have a two-tier, and I'd say, I would say a three-tier health system, but we're definitely a two-tier health system. And in order to incentivise the progression of the, the private healthcare system, and that's the only word I can come up with, but it, as of itself, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it's about good care and good machines, good staff and well-treated staff. So not, but in order to incentivise the use of that, it seems to me, um, and some politicians down through the years have made remarks about this. I remember Brendan Howland making a remark about this, um, that, that we, we don't want to have the best public health system there is. Now, that's not the case with cancer care. But in general, it is. Like, it, it, I heard a statistic the other day. You know, politically, everybody's on board for Schlauncher care, aren't they? Not too many people are going to listen to this who would publicly argue against the morality of a single tier health system available to all at the, free at the point of use. There's not too many people who would publicly argue about that. So politically, Schlauncher care is adopted by everybody. But the, but the waiting lists have doubled since Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael jumped on Sláinte Care. We all know Sláinte Care is not happening. It's a, it's a scam. Well, can I ask you, and this is a personal question, but it is entirely it's like relevant. You. It's not like you, man. <laughs> As a trade union official, a senior trade union official, do you have private health insurance? I do, yeah. And did you use it? To some extent, not really. I didn't need private health insurance for my GP. I didn't need private health insurance for the Beaumont. I didn't need private health insurance for the radiography. Um, so I don't think that in my specific case, I got a, I got a couple of scans. Um, I can't even remember what they were, CAT scans or whatever. Yeah. MRI, MRIs. Which are expensive. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so my, my, pri- my VHI, I'm in the VHI because when I worked with Irish Rail, long time ago when me and you first met, Back in the good old days, back in the nineteen nineties, Irish Rail had a Irish Rail had a had a, a a group, VHI plan, whatever it is, B plan or whatever it is, and I joined it then, uh, militant train driver that I was, and I think all my colleagues probably joined it, you know, and I've been in the same plan ever since, and I and I don't, you know, I don't have an issue with that. What I have an issue with, is, and I think what we as a society need to have an issue with, is this notion that there are people who are dying today in this country because they cannot afford available health care that could save their lives if they had money. Now, we had an Oxfam report this week which discussed the distribution of wealth globally, but it focused in on Ireland. There was a good section of it, did anyway. Um, And we found out, for example, not that we needed to know, that the wealthiest 1% of Irish society now owns a quarter of the country's wealth. When I say that, people will say, oh, there's Brendan Ogle, he wants to bring the, the North Korean tanks now and take all our, take all our money and take all our property. And no, no, but it is a fact that a small amount of that redistributed in a progressive downward way could lead to a situation, could lead to a situation that some of the more unacceptable, immoral ills in our state, and we have a good half dozen of them at least, could be fundamentally addressed, but they're not. But why is it then that many of the left-wing parties in this country... Oh, don't get me started on the left-wing parties. Oh, we'll be getting there. But that they focus on taxing income rather than taxing wealth. Mm. And, for example, a lot of wealth is tied up in property. And the strongest arguments made against property taxes, bizarrely, almost uniquely to Ireland, come from the parties of the left. Matt, if the Irish left didn't exist, the Irish right would invent them. Um, Explain. 
You could, but you're absolutely right. Um, there's three. There's three types of tax. There's income, there's wealth tax, and there's consumption taxes. Um, and our income tax is progressive. Generally, it could be more progressive in my view, but you know, it's progressive. By international standards, it is. Those who earn the most pay the most on income. Um, but, but where we fall down is on the other two categories. Because on consumption taxes, you know, somebody poor going into the shop will pay the same amount of, of consumption taxes as somebody rich. Somebody maybe very, very, very rich. So there's nothing progressive with that. And as you say, uh, wealth tax, which you could also describe as property tax or wealth and property tax. You know, I'm not going to give a big speech here, but we fall well down on the European average there. Well down, like less than a third. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about countries, the European average, Germany, France, Spain, you know, civilised countries um, that we consider our peers. But then the government comes along and they say, well, we're going to have a property tax. And there's an outcry. Well, one of the reasons why there's an outcry on the left, and the left are dysfunctional anyway, but one of the reasons why there's an outcry is because the, is it a real property tax or is it just another way of having a kind of a flat tax that hits people more or less the same regardless of whether you're living in a one-bedroom apartment or if you're living in a mansion with, with 100 acres? It has to be measured whether it, that, that tax itself is progressive. But in general, you're right. If we, if we have a progressive income tax system, then the issues we need to address are in the areas of wealth slash property tax and consumption taxes. And as I say, you know, actually, Matt, I'm not a Marxist. I'm a guy from Dundalk that drove a train once and that some manager pissed off. And I said, I'm not having this. So I says, I'm going to argue with him now. Um, got involved, I suppose, in a few strikes, but Thatcher was privatising Britain at the time and I happened to work there. There wasn't much choice, you know, she was a pretty obnoxious person. I kind of learned then, as, as the t last 30 years, that, you know, there are injustices in society and we can have a fairer society. So that's kind of what I advocate for. Just go back and remind me, the Locomotive Drivers Association, the that's Irish, what it was called. Ilda, Ilda. Ilda, the Irish Locomotive Drivers Association. Remember what Eamon Dunphy called it? What? Dildo. <laughs> on air. And I've just done it on air now. <laughs> okay. He'll bleep that in. Uh, no, I won't. I won't. Because um, I remember those were occasions when I would have been standing in for Eamon when I was still editor of the Tribune before I took over the last word when he left. I remember it well. Uh, was he sympathetic to you then? No, he gave me dog's abuse. Shall we, shall, shall, years later, when he ended up on them, years later, he ended up doing a different way. I forget, a breakfast show. On News Talk, he on did. On News Talk, and I was involved in an ESB strike. And he wouldn't, he, 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 I hope he's listening to this. He wouldn't, he wanted me to go on. And I was on all the radios, you know, but I wouldn't go on with him because he gave me such abuse on Today FM at the time. And I wouldn't go on with him. And, and Lisa in my office kept saying, so Eamon Dunphy's on again, and Eamon Dunphy's office is on again. I said, tell Eamon Dunphy, the Eamon Dunphy's office, the next time the ring, he's to ring me himself. So he did. He rang me in about 10 minutes. Why will you not go on the show with me? You're on every radio show in the country. You won't. And I said, because you're uh, such and such. <laughs> Why do you say that to me? And I said, so I reminded him of a particular interview where he called me a con man on air. Nearly went to law, but I had no money. You can get away with calling both people con men in this country. Um, Eamon can, anyway. So I reminded him of that. And he says, you know what? You're right. He says, I've met lots of con men in my time. I don't agree with you on lots of things, but you're not one of them. So if you do the interview with me tomorrow on The Breakfast Show, I'll apologise on air for that. 
And I says, okay, I'll go on with you tomorrow. You apologize on air. And if you don't, I'm hanging up on air. <laughs> and I have to say, I got the most fulsome apology I ever got of anybody. <laughs> What was the LTA strike all about? The ILDA strike all about? Ilda, 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 come sorry. on, Matt. What was it all about? I'm trying to remember back to then. What it was about was they wanted to train up the vast bulk of staff in Irish Rail to drive trains, <laughs> even if you weren't a train driver. So if a train driver got sick or was on a holiday or whatever, they, they could pick somebody off the, the platform or the ticket office and you jump up on the train. So it was a demeaning of the job, which had serious skills and health and safety issues from our point of view. And it was at the time of a lot of rail accidents in London, the Paddington rail crash and things like that, Watford Junction, Clapham Junction. And um, there was a, an independent investigator at the time in Britain, a fellow called P.G. Rayner, who was heading up inquiries into these accidents, who became aware of what Irish Rail's proposals were and came over here. I think you might have spoken to him, actually come over here and um, so there was huge safety aspects of it but it was basically an attempt at the time to completely eradicate the safety provisions of our job. Now look at there was also terms and conditions aspects so a dispute, they locked us out of work for three months in the summer of 2000 I was living in Athlone at the time um, running this kind of, wasn't even a union it was half the train drivers in the country but it was just a band of brothers really and they were brothers there was no women train drivers then and um, from my box room and um, I was kind of propelled onto, into you and into Vincent Brown and into Eamon Dunphy calling me a con man and <laughs> <laughs> 23 years ago now so um, do you actually look back on that fondly well look I wrecked my first marriage did it yeah ultimately yeah I took my eye off the ball yeah yeah stupid um, I was more yeah I got caught up in it because it went on for years then because they sued us then uh, Irish Rail sued 30 of us uh, in the High Court for £30,000 each. And to put that in context, my house that I had bought in Athlone at the time, I had bought for £49,000. I was living in Athlone then. So they sued 10 of us for that. So that went to the, to the High Court. It took seven days in the High Court. But you can imagine, it takes quite a while. To get what to was the, the outcome? Court. The outcome was we also had a recognition claim that we put in as a counterclaim. Judge Earle O'Neill, I remember, he, he threw out their case. John Rogers was uh, our... our um, senior counsel. Senior, and Peter Charlton, and their uh, HR manager, you might remember his name, John Keenan. Yes, uh, vaguely, yes. John Rogers did, had John, twirl John in the box for about two days because they were up first, you see, they were prosecuting. And then uh, Peter Charlton couldn't wait to get into me and then do you remember John Rogers saying to me in the, in the halls of the High Court, I'm not putting you in the box. I was disgusted. I said, you're what? I'm not putting you in the box. He says, they had to prove their case. They haven't proved their case. 
And he says, I'm not putting you in the box to lose the case. How dare you? So I met John a couple of years ago at, a, at, a, at an event and we had a good laugh about this, you know. He didn't put me in the box and we won the case. Uh, we lost the counterclaim and then they, then they appealed to the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, so we went down for three or four years. And financially, how did you manage that? The less said about that, the better. There's a, there's a, there's a film needs to be made about uh, the day that railway sleepers paid for a, for a Supreme Court and a High Court court case. But I, if, if there's any, if, if Jim Sheridan is listening to this, <laughs> I've been talking to Jim for a while. There's a good film to be made about that. But uh, look, it was tough times, and it affected it affected us all. In, in, in some way or other, affected our families, affected children, and marriages broke up over it. Not mine at the time, it was later on the mine broke up, but at the time I remember some of the people involved, and yeah, it were tough times. In retrospect, was it worth doing? It's funny, Matt, that uh, I've been asking myself that question a lot about a lot of things lately, uh, and I haven't actually asked myself that question about that time. Um, I, do, I do often say that I regret ever getting off the train. Um, was I like train driving, you know? And I stopped being a train driver in 2004. So I'll be a trade union official 20 years next year. I was actually going to ask you, and you've preempted it a bit, what did you like about train driving? Sort of like little boy's t- dream, isn't it, at times too? Yeah, and, there, and actually, you know, people, there is that too. Like. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you're, 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 you're in charge. And I kind of like that. <laughs> I was just about to say that. <laughs> so, so uh, and there's nobody in your ear. You're on your own and you're in charge, which is the best way to be in charge. <laughs> so there's a solitude, there's a responsibility aspect. It's also quite nice barreling through the country there at 80 mile an hour through the countryside. Ireland's a beautiful place, you know. Um, now look, at when you're coming up from Ballina at four o'clock in the morning and there's enough, there's enough fog that you can't see a metre ahead of you and you're dealing with gate crossings and semaphore signals that should have been done away with 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Uh, and when you're involved in accidents and things like that, it's not so nice. So I may be looking back at some of it with rose-tinted spectacles. But given some of the things I've been through since, I have often said, I curse the day I ever got off the train. You mentioned John Rogers, a barrister. Do you ever think that you might have made a good barrister yourself, given that you say you love being an advocate and you love taking a row and running with it? Yeah, I do, yeah. I, I think it's something I would have enjoyed and, I, and something I something I could have done. I, I studied law. At King's Inns. I remember that vaguely, mm. yeah. Yeah, I studied law at King's Inns. I, I did a, a, a diploma in the Barrister of Law degree in King's Inns and the Gate subjects. At that time, I was the, the group secretary of the ESB Group of Unions, which I considered at the time, still probably do, as pretty important, probably one of the most important roles in the Irish trade union movement. And it certainly was at the time because there was a privatisation agenda and all that going on. Um, uh, and I was, to be honest with you, just to be brutally honest with you. I was kind of drinking a bit much at the time. My, uh, my marriage had broken up a few years earlier and I was living alone and I was drinking a bit much in the evening. So I kind of did it to give me something to do in the evenings other than going home on my own and going to the pub, you know? Yeah. Um, but I got into it uh, and I did it for a year, year and a half because I made a mess of, some, of one of the subjects. I turned up for the wrong exam on the wrong day and made a mess of it. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I did like it. Um, I never intended to practice. And I said a bit of advice to any kids or my own kids. You know, I made up my mind before I was even started. I'm going to do this to get myself out in the evening and to learn something new. But I'm never going to practice. And I, I approached it with a closed mind, if that makes sense. It does. I have a good job and I like my job. I'm just doing this for this reason. Uh, 
and then I liked it, and in some aspects of it, I was quite good at it. Um, I, you know, I liked some of the subjects, liked constitutional law, liked criminal law. Um, so a couple of subjects, I, I, I discovered I was a land law genius, which would be a major surprise to everybody, most of all me. Um, <laughs> so just lucky with the, I was just lucky with the questions that day. But um, I never kind of had my approach with an open, this is something I'd like to do. It's only now when I look back, I think, you know, maybe. But then again, I do know people who are, who are, who are in the bar and I do know people who've done it subsequent to me and who went down and tried to practice and it's cutthroat, you know. It is, it's very difficult. It's cutthroat, very hard to make it, to get, to get a footing. Once you get a footing, it can be great and it can be a great career and a great life, but very hard to get a footing and very, very competitive and cutthroat. So, so maybe not, you know, who knows. Okay, let's talk about other things. About four or five years ago, you floated the idea that you were launching a political party. Mm. What happened to it? Well, did I? You did. Oh, you did. You went on TV3 Sunday show and you spoke at length about it and what you were going to do and that you had a manifesto and all the rest of it. And you never did anything. What happened? Yeah, well, basically, <clears throat> good question. First of all, just again, some context. I, I, all our lives, we have had... What well, effectively single party government. I know people are going to say they're not the same, but they are the same. And at least I've been honest now, they've been the same. We've had single party government in this state since independence. You know, two Tory parties, yin and yang, uh, looking after. Um, no, so, no, hold on, no, hold on. What about the influence of the, the Labour? I know, but what about the influence of the Labour Party on many occasions, particularly on the introduction of social change over the last 30 years? Well, let's, if you want to talk about the Labour Party, I'm going to have to start with the 2011 2016 government. But so let's leave them for a minute. Okay, I'm talking about we have, we have all, we, all governments have been led by Philip Fair enough. Right. So I know there's coalitions and all that, but all governments have been led by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And I would like to see, I would like to see in my lifetime, our first non- government not led by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And I know that's going to bring us into a Sinn Féin conversation and I have no problem going there. But for now, the, the water charges campaign was massive. The Unite was central to that and I was probably one of the central, I was the central spokesperson for it. And out of the right to water campaign became a right to change uh, a set of 10 policy principles uh, and there is no doubt that between 2015 2016 that win- there was a window of opportunity then um, for a broad progressive uh, party based around uh, broad progressive policy principles and we had right to water we had uh, you know, right to natural resources, right to healthcare, right to education, 10 policy principles. And that right to water campaign succeeded where all, most other left campaigns failed because we had a model where we were able to keep the, keep the lunatics on the side and force people a little bit closer to the centre to work together. We didn't let it go off down some sectarian left cul-de-sac which is where all most left campaigns end up. And they're all squabbling over 50 members here or 50 members there or their stupid little newspapers. Right? So Right to Water wasn't like that. Right to Water was communities and trade unions uh, kind of saying to the political parties on the left, listen, guys, we all have to work together here or this campaign won't work. And then it did work. It worked on water. I know what people have other views of that. The fact of the matter is it worked. So then we said, well, if it worked on water, what else might it work on? So we had conferences and we had international speakers and we had all sorts of people. We brought political parties in and we come up with these 10 principles and they were voted on and it was an effective manifesto. And actually 129 
candidates in the 2016 general election signed up to that manifesto. And I forget how many of them got elected, but a fair few did. Um, so then we had a conference in the Mansion House to see could we bring that together. Um, and what happened? Well, there's a, it's, a, it's a debate about what happened. Um, you know, and the people who would debate this, I suppose, would be within the union circles, myself, my good friend John Douglas, who was then the General Secretary of Mandate, my very other good friend Stevie Fitzpatrick, who was then the General Secretary of CWU. Owen Ronan would have been around. He was in the CPSU, which is now gone, part of FORSA. Um, you know, I would say, over a pint with John and Bray, because I have done, he, he didn't think it could work. He would say I was too ambitious or hasty. Um, the trade unions didn't, when it got to the big question, will we form a party? Which is, by the way, how the Labour Party were formed in Britain, by trade unions. Will we form a party? When it got to that question in the unions, we come up against, well, the executive isn't involved. And then you have, you have political influences in the unions, you see. So you have Labour people in the unions, Sinn Féin people, but mostly Labour people in the unions. And of course, we ended up very quickly putting the back foot, nearly making promises. No, no, we're not trying to form a party. We're just trying to win on water charges. And we're just trying to... Uh, and then we come under attack then as well from the sectarian left. You know, gatekeepers minding their little club. Um, so oh, these, these lunatics in Right to Water who are after winning the biggest social justice campaign in, in terms of econ economics that we've had, uh, they now want to kind of usurp us and, and form a party. Well, we're not having that. So well, sorry, wouldn't a lot of them have thought that they won the campaign? That well, they were the leaders of it? If they ran the campaign, they would never have won. Um, the reason why the campaign, won, the campaign won is because the communities and the unions, the, the unions funded it and provided the logistics and the community people who were out there protesting before any of us got involved um, basically kept the small fringe parties in check. Now they did, when it came down to abolishing labour water chargers in the doll, but it was won by then. Philip Fall had it in the manifesto by then, for God's sake. So when it came down to the, the night that water chargers were abolished in the doll, of course it was politicians who did it, but they did it because of the groundswell of public opinion that had been delivered by the Right to Water Company. You gave us a list of friends there that you discussed it with. And were there any women involved? Oh, loads of women. <laughs> it's just that you mentioned a number well, of I men. Well, I can't help General Secretary unions are traditionally men. <laughs> but I was just wondering, in your campaign, as you looked to... I met my wife in the Right to Water campaign. I met her on the stage of, of, of uh, Right to Water. There's, there's an answer for you now. <laughs> that is an answer, I, definitely. I, I met her on the stage, at the Right to Water stage, on the 10th of December 2004, when she got up to make a speech. I said, well, there you go. So, um, Claire Daly, another conversation now. But Claire Daly was involved. Rona McCord, who works in my office now. I used to work with Claire, was very much involved. Ruth Coppinger was a TD at the time. She was involved. There was loads of women. Breed Smith, loads of women. In it's okay, I just wanted to check. Yeah. Because you'd mentioned lots of men. Tick. But when it came to actually forming a new political movement, the way you're actually sort of describing it is, I think people expected you and thought it was just another party of the left. I mean, you are of the left. So how could it have been a party of the centre as you're trying to portray it? Well, you see, where the left is depends on where the centre is and depends <laughs> on where the right is, doesn't it? That is a good point. <laughs> and it's a spectrum. Um, and the things, that, the things that might seem left now or even radical now as far as i'm concerned they're of the center and let's talk about one for a minute housing when i say things like 
the solution, and, and I'm convinced of this, and there's no other solution, by the way, and there never will be another solution. The only solution to the housing emergency is to build public housing. It's the only solution there is. Now, when I say that in the mainstream, I'm looked, upon, I'm looked like as if I'm a dinosaur from... Sorry, by who? Loads of people believe that. Well, uh, there is not a political party in the, in the centre or on the right or in government. There's not a council that is hiring a, a, a brickie, a plasterer. We have a construction sector that is enti- almost entirely built on the scam that is bogus self-employment, um, which is costing the taxpayer million, tens of millions every year. Um, directly and in future costs and losses to people's pensions and people's benefits and all that sort of stuff. So the whole system is set up on the basis that the only people who can build houses in this country are the private sector. And the public's role is to give them, you know, reduced or free land, uh, tax breaks, uh, and get them to build a few cheaper houses, which we call social housing. But the, but the houses that I grew up in, built by Loud County Council or Dundalk Urban District Council, which are all populated all over this country. Still there today, by the way. Guess what? There's no mica in them. There's no pyrite in them. Um, still standing proud all around this city were built by local authorities. And, uh, and oh, sorry, we, not always, sorry. I mean, an awful lot of that work was subcontracted to private companies. Well, my, the, houses, the houses that I grew up in were built in the 1950s. And they were built by Dundalk Urban District Council. 157 of them in Marion Park. And, you know, this is what I don't get with the, with the, with the right-wing uh, ideology. Because the right-wing ideology is supposed to be about competition. That's what it's supposed to be about. So what we need in terms of housing provision here is competition between the public sector and the private sector. But, at the, but, but since Thatcherism, which was leaped upon by Fianna Fáil, uh, who sold the state's housing stock, um, the public, the private sector has, has no competition other than internal in itself, and so that's a cartel. So it has no competition other than to drive up prices, hold, a, hold the government to ransom, and look for tax breaks and look for free land. Whereas if there was councils out there saying we can build housing without that 15 or 20 or 25% profit margin being necessary, and saying, to, saying in the labour market, we can give you a job that won't give you that, that level of income this week, but we'll give you a pension, we'll give you sick pay, we'll give you job security to build houses and work for Loud District, Loud County Council. That sort of competition is what's necessary. Would you be confident about the competency of local councils to do that work? Well, you see, you see that brings us to another layer of ideology, doesn't it? That brings us to this small government, big government thing. And local councils, the, the local councils that I'm talking about used to, used to be resourced. You know, they used to have staff. They used to have skills. They used to have offices. They used to have trucks. They used to have, you know, labour. Uh, and, of course, that's all been downsized. And that's all been skilled. So, so at the moment, there's no quick fix for this. At the moment, the answer is no. But what we need to Because do, even when you give money to councils these days, they don't seem to do anything with it. No. They don't because they, well, what, well, what can they do with it really? Because they haven't got the resources to do stuff, you know. They haven't got the resources to build to build things. So what we need to do then is 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 is, is build back up the ability of our communities because that's what councils should be, a reflection of the local community. To build back up the ability of our communities to provide for themselves a community level. Okay, but then what do you make of the fact that every time somebody tries to do something in this country about building? It's the local communities that nearly always have enormous objections. And 
I have a reason for saying that because I've been doing quite a lot of research on this recently and I'm quite shocked almost by no matter what it is you're trying to put in place, there's the amount of objections that come from all sorts of people to block anything. It's always a question, yes, we need more housing, but not here. It has to be over there instead. Well, nimbyism is a problem. There's no doubt about that. Uh, nimbyism is a problem and we've all become very society now. I'm not just talking about Ireland. I think society in this era has become very individualistic. Or selfish. Yeah, very selfish, very inward-looking. Um, rather than look at things as at a community level, it's how am I, or uh, at an extension, how is my family and my extended family, at an extension. But, but we've all been kind of trained over the last 20, 30 years to be, to be looking at ourselves. It was Margaret Thatcher who famously said, there's no such thing as society. And that Reaganite Thatcherite uh, ideology, which was a fringe ideology at the time, is now the global ideology in the part of the world that we live in, the European Union, the United States, or whatever. So we're all very individual. Um, and, and it's hard to see it. But sorry, aren't there times when that falls down, as in we actually realise it's not the case, such as in the initial response to COVID, something you discussed early, showed that when a crisis actually faced us, we did all band together. Well... What happened with COVID was, and, and this could be the answer to nimbyism as well. Well, let's just say, there are, I won't name them because some of them are dead now, but there are politicians and councillors who didn't have any problem getting around nimbyism in, in, the, in, the, in the not too distant past. And, and, and the way they got around it was brown envelopes. Um, so, you know, in terms of COVID, there was strong decision making. And I think the lesson from COVID is and I talked earlier on about trying to manage a workplace in that context, and there was guard at checkpoints. Imagine, like it's hard. It's, it's only a couple of years ago when you nearly have to pinch yourself to remember. You're going to work, and there's a guard at the end of the street saying, Where the hell are you going? Have you got permission? No, oh, go back home again. Um, now, if somebody told you three or four years ago that was going to happen, you'd say, Don't be so ridiculous. We'd never put up with that. But there was, a, there was a, an acceptance that this is a, 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 an, a problem that. that is of such a scale, strong decision-making is going to be necessary, and the vast bulk of people, now we know there's conspiracy theorists all over the place, but the vast bulk of people, once they became convinced of the threat, went along with, in general, with the strong decision-making. That sounds a bit like a benign dictatorship. Well, look at it. It's, it's a, you see, you can't, on the one hand, you know, say, well, we've, we've got weak leaders, and then on the other hand, if, if, if Strong leadership a pandemic happens. comes along and tens of thousands of people literally are dying, which requires strong leadership, well, that's a dictatorship. That's, that's what the conspiracy theorists are saying. You know, there are limits to our rights. We don't, of course, there are limits to our rights. I, I believe in the right to protest. But for example, where the right to protest infringes on somebody's health, infringes on somebody's life, or I would say infringes on somebody's privacy, then those rights trump your right to protest. So we all have rights, but the rights have to be weighed up well, then, from a societal I, point of view. Can I ask, when it came to right to protest, the protests, remember the time Joan Burton got trapped in her yeah. car? Would you have been involved in something like that? No, or would, would you have let her go? No, I would not have been involved in something like that. And condemned it at the time. And in fact, in fact, 
it was a turning point in the water charges movement. Now, let's, let's not to point fingers. There was a big stitch up afterwards where people in the community were disgracefully treated by the state and, and, and the courts vindicated them in the end, rightly so. And half of, half of the journalistic entourage in Ireland went mental. But the courts were correct because it was a complete stitch up. But the incident itself shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened. Um, so, you know, and there were other incidents happened during that campaign. And when you're, when you're leading a campaign or when you're a front person for a campaign, if something goes wrong, you have to stand out. There's stuff going on at the moment, Matt, in terms of, of, of people protesting in communities uh, about refugees and asylum seekers. And what's required is politicians to stop worrying about votes, of all parties now, to stop worrying about votes and to say, this is wrong. Um, and to take a stand against racism, to take a stand against the targeting of asylum seekers, um, so there are times you just have to stand up. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think it's absolutely shocking that we have a situation whereby families who are long-term in hotels, which are not suitable for families to live for anything more than a couple of weeks in a hotel room, we have done, in many respects, absolutely brilliantly in facilitating 70,000 plus people coming into the country over the last year, particularly the schools. What's been done at primary and secondary school level in bringing children into the system has been terrific. But is it not legitimate to ask questions that for all of our good intentions about maybe having to do the same again this year, that we don't seem to be capable of doing it and that we have to have conversations about whether we can continue to do that if we're not going to be able to provide people with the facilities on coming to the country that they surely deserve? Yeah, of course it's legitimate to ask those questions um, and to, to, to address them and assess them. But the starting point to that conversation has to be a reflection on something we've, we've talked about already is, 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 is the, the, lack, the general lack of housing because that's what's being used to motivate these protests. Now, the general lack of housing arose when the Celtic tiger turned into a homeless cat, uh, a mirage, um, and I was involved in the Apollo House occupation in 2017. Um, Apollo House was an 11-storey building that the state owned that was empty. It wasn't perfect for housing people, but it cut people off the street. It's now a car park. State owned it. And, uh, it's not been built on at present. It did knock, yeah, knock down and turned into a car park. Yeah. Oh, no, but it's actually the work, the construction work yeah, is on, yeah, ongoing yeah, there right, at present. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so, so, and there's lots of, that, lots of that went on. So in terms of, of, of where that brings us, we, we are entering a re, an international refugee emergency where there are 100, 100 million displaced people in the world today. 100 million. We have 70,000, just over 70,000 came to Ireland last year. Despite what people will tell you online, 50,000 of them odds, using general numbers here, 50,000 odds came from the Ukraine. And believe it or not, far right, there is an actual war in Ukraine. There is an actual fascist bombing Ukraine. There are actual Russian soldiers raping women and girls in Ukraine. And if we can take those women and girls and their brothers and sisters and, and fathers and, uh, to 
Um, so let's, let's get rid of all this male nonsense now. If we can bring them and put them in a hotel, or even put them in a tent, unacceptable as that is, it's better than being raped by a Russian soldier in Ukraine. So let's start in a real place. Now, we have an emergency, we have a housing emergency, and we've got over 11,000 Irish uh, people and women, men, men, women and children homeless, and that's completely unacceptable. That does not mean we allow Ukrainian women and children to be raped. So when we start from there, we then have to look at, well, how are we going to do it? And I see Roderick O'Gorman yesterday saying, you know, we're, we're, we're reaching the point now where, where people are intense and clear, completely unacceptable, reaching the point where we're going to have nowhere to put these people. United Nations is saying the same about yeah, us. Yeah, but I'm also, I'm also listening to the Red Cross on the radio this morning saying that in an emergency situation, and this is an emergency situation, in an emergency situation, we do have premises which aren't ideal in the normal course, but, but in the short term could be used and can be used, and the Red Cross would approve them for use to bring in more. So I would say, yes, let's do that. But I would also say this has to happen in parallel um, with a discussion around the housing emergency that we're, talking, that we're talking about. Because when it doesn't, when it happens somewhere else, and when we're not really discussing the housing emergency, it opens up a space for the far right to use that genuine problem. I'm worried about, I have, a, I have two kids, Matt. I have a girl that's 25 and I have another girl that's, that's 19. And I'm very worried about their futures. I'm very worried, you know, whatever about jobs and precarious employment and all that. Will they ever own a home? Will they ever be able to afford a home the way I was? Um, so, and families all around the country are worried about that. And there's people, you know, couch surfing and there's people homeless, there's people in tents. So, there's an open wound there in Irish society before Vladimir Putin did anything. Um, there's an open wound in Irish society and that wound has been, has been manipulated by the far right um, and, and unless we address that wound parallel to the humanitarian approach that we take to, to asylum seekers and refugees. And just to say to, to, to before, I don't want to be all negative. I know some, I know some refugees um, who have come here actually from Afghanistan who have now been settled in, in various parts of Ireland, but I'm not going to name where they are, but they're in various parts of Ireland and there's children. And, and, and their family, some of their families were butchered by the Taliban in the last couple of years. So they've only arrived here in the last couple of years. But their children have been uh, brought into the communities, have been brought into school, sometimes they're involved in the GA club, they're learning the language, completely different. You can imagine now the culture, the climate, the differences in the whole lot. But the welcome that they're receiving in those communities, rural and urban communities, in different parts of this country. And they were all in the one place at one point, and they're all in different places now, but they connect with each other and they stay in touch with each other and they stay in touch with us. And this welcome they're receiving is universal at 10 or 11 different points around Ireland. So let's not talk ourselves into a situation where we're not a generous people, because the experience that I'm seeing is we are, but the far right at the moment need to be taken on and need to be, need to be taken down. My understanding is that there are actually plenty of premises that could actually be repurposed to work as centres, even if on a temporary basis, while modular houses or other houses are constructed. But that we do seem to have almost... An inertia within parts of the state apparatus, the civil service, 
local councils, whatever. There's an enormous frustration on the part of the likes of the Irish Red Cross, or as I know from various people contacting the last word, people who've made offers of rooms and houses, who have been vetted, who've gone through the procedure, and nothing has happened. That there seems to be an incomplete failure of the system. And that's why I come back to the thing with you earlier about trusting the system or the state to provide all the houses, because all of the evidence of the last number of decades is, is that you say it's down to under-resourcing. I wonder, is it more than that? What, what am I saying is down to under-resourcing? Now? You said the failure of the various county councils to build houses and things like that. Well, if you're looking at, if you're looking at the... Up until Ukraine, uh, which is just coming up to a year now, the, the, the disgusting invasion... Uh, and I keep using those terms, by the way, because I want to divorce myself from some of the nonsense that goes on on the left about Ukraine. Um, it's a disgusting fascist invasion by a fascist. Um, Absolutely. So, Sorry, yeah, can I just yeah. agree with no, you? I, I, do, I, I think it needs to be said yeah, far to be more said, often. Yeah, and the left need to, some of the left need to be called out on, on soft on Putin, soft on, well, soft on the cause There's of a lot, Putin. a lot of the right need to be called out as well. An awful lot of the denial of what's happened in Ukraine is coming from the same right-wing sources who don't want to take immigrants into the country. Yeah, well, so it's surprising the longer you're at this, the, the more you discover how often the far right meets the far left. It's kind of a circle. It is. Uh, so anyway, getting back to getting back before Ukraine, we were in our own electoral cycle, four or five years, whatever you have in yourself, depending on how Pascal does next week. So we're in our electoral cycle. And I think it would be, I don't think it's a controversial thing to say, that it would have been anticipated that probably the key issue that would, be, would determine the next election, certainly in Dublin and the major urban centres, would be the housing emergency, as Michael D. Higgins calls it. Some of the people call it something else, but I call it a housing emergency. So that was the big issue. And now we have a situation that Ukraine has happened, and the conversation is, is, is being moved by certain forces into the, into the problem isn't the housing emergency, the problem is the asylum seekers and the refugees, and we're full. Who does that suit? Who does moving the conversation into that space suit from an electoral point of view? So I'm just putting that question out there now. I'm not going to answer it myself. Maybe my, my, what I think the answer is implicit in the fact that I'm putting the question in the first place. But, you know, it suits someone. Um, so I think we need to be very, very, very clear. The people who are responsible for the housing emergency in this country are rich, white, Irish people in politics, not black or Ukrainian bombed people coming here for shelter. And when we go into the next year, year and a half, um, that, that reality needs to be centre stage. Otherwise, we're in danger of ending up with some sort of Trump-like, uh, you know, unreal parallel universe where people who've done nothing but be victims are getting blamed for, for ills that we've built up over 100 years. Earlier you mentioned the fact that you think we've had a one-party state since the creation of the state, as in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are indistinguishable, they've led every single government. So are you looking forward to a Sinn Féin-led government after the next election? Good question. I'm looking forward to, and it's not a simple answer, but I'm going to be, I thought about this, uh, I haven't really discussed this, but I think it's probably time I just say this. I have a lot of friends in Sinn Féin. Um, and I want to see my, the first non-Sinn Féin-led government in this state. Sorry, non-Sinn Féin-led? The first non-Fine Fáil and Fine Gael Fine Gael, sorry, yes. And, and obviously, if that's to happen in the next 
you know, period of time, it's going to be a Sinn Féin-led government. You know, the, the rest of the left, Labour aren't going to recover. The Sock Dems are, are good people, but they're not going to lead, lead the next government. And the Trotskyist parties don't even want to be in government. They're waiting for worldwide revolution or something. So it's going to be Sinn Féin-led, right? Um, so that's a reality that somebody that's interested in politics like me has to confront. And, you know, should I be part of that? Because that, I want to see the non-Fine Fáil, Fine Gael, should I be part of it? And I constantly, you know, have this internal question myself. Um, and I've never been a member of a political party, and I've thought about it. Um, but then I'm brought back to, and this is just personal to me, I have concerns about things that, 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 that have been done um, by, by people, in, and not just on, but the IRA, people in Sinn Féin. Uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. I think that's unfair. That conversation is unfair, by the way, because I'm aware of things that the Loyalists have done, that the Brits have done, that the British Army have done, and that this state have done and presided over. So I'm talking about more recent stuff than that. I'm not talking about that. I get that. I'm not even talking about the arguments that people like Michael McDowell will put, that Sinn Féin are in hock to these invisible men. You know, you know, Fine Fáil are in hock to building developers. You know, um, Fine Gael are in hock to God knows who. You know, so I'm not even... Our, the, 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 the quality of our democracy, no matter what party you look at, I think is questionable. I'm brought back on a personal level, and I hope... Uh, she won't mind me saying this. Uh, she, I know she won't. I'm brought back on a personal level to um, Paul Quinn. You know, you're going to have to remind our listeners as to who Paul Quinn is because his death in 2007 was one of the most vicious, appalling acts that has taken place. But yet I suspect an awful lot of our listeners might go, who's Paul Quinn? Paul was a, a young man from Cross McLean in South Armagh I don't think his mum Breed would mind me describing him as a, as a lively chap. You know, he was a bit of a a bit of a a bit of a, a character. Uh, he was out there with the lads. He liked his guy. He liked the crack, um, and you know, he might have been. Uh, look, he was a young man growing up, experiencing life. We've all we've all explored different aspects and the whole lot. But a good guy from a really good family, and he got in a he got in an argument as a lot of us do as young men. I certainly did. Um, Somebody told me you did there the other day as well, but we parked that one. But um, I, we, young men get in arguments, you know. Um, Paul got in an argument with the wrong people uh, for where he lived, and he ended up uh, being lured to a, a shed um, where there was a gang waiting for him one Saturday afternoon, and he was beaten to such an extent that when they got his body to Drogheda Hospital several hours later, um, every single bone in his body was broken. The people who did that, were IRA people, which would previously have been known as the IRA people. The IRA, of course, doesn't exist anymore, as we all know. Um, but that's who they were. And um, I know Breege Quinn, um, Paul's mum. And I knew about the case anyway. Uh, and it, look, at, the world's a tough place and dreadful, awful things happen. But nobody has been brought to justice for Paul's apparent murder. It wasn't one person that did it. It was a gang. I don't think, I don't, I don't understand how someone hasn't been identified and there hasn't been some semblance of justice for Breach and her, and her family. And Breach still lives there in Cross McGlen and goes to Mass 
uh, and shops and lives in that community, you know, speaks out. And Breege is not somebody who would, who would have been anti-Sinn Féin. It's cro- we're talking about Cross McGlenn here. Yeah, but see, there are going to be people listening to this saying, well, that's ex-IRA members if the IRA is gone. What has that got to do with Sinn Féin? Well, look, at all I'm, all I'm going to say is when, when I consider myself who, who wants to see that government and when I meet and talk to Breege Quinn uh, and when I... And then I was talking to somebody during the, during the summer about something else, um, retired guard actually, who I was talking about in a different context. And, and he was saying to me, you know, just like you have after said, Brendan, why did you join Sinn Féin? This is a retired guard. Why did you join Sinn Féin? Like, and that's cause could be a, a role for you now and you, you have a lot to say and you have a lot of views and, you know, you'd agree with some of the policies, which I would, by the way, um, some of the policies. Um, and I says, well, I'll give him this reason. I'd, I think I'd have to actually go and meet Breach Quinn and apologise to her if I ever did that. And she might say it's okay. I don't know what you'd say, but that's how I feel. And he says, and so I told him that. And he says to me, I understand, yeah. He says, you know, there's, there's more than one Breach Quinn. I think... Sorry, what do you mean by that? that well, he was saying th- that there are other families that I might not be as familiar with. Yeah. Um, and mightn't be as close and I mightn't feel so personal about. Um, so look at, you know, I just have to answer my own questions in my own life. I want to see the first non-Fine Fáil, Fine Gael government in this state, sooner the better, hopefully after the next election. I know that's going to be led by Sinn Féin. I think, you know, part of me wants to be involved in that, but I just can't cross that in my head. And also, isn't there the possibility that Sinn Féin, in leading a government, might have to go into coalition with Fianna Fáil? Well... How would you feel about that? I would shot leave immediately. If I, if that, in, that, in that situation... In fact, I think what Sinn Féin should do, and who am I to tell them what they should do? You know, they know a lot more about elections than I'll ever know. Um, but I think what I think what they kind of should do is go to the electorate and say, can we promise, can we believe any promise before an election anymore? But go to an electorate and say, if we will not enter a coalition with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I'm sure everyone has said that in advance of elections. Know, Those even, are the things you say, John. Fianna Fáil said it. <laughs> in fact, when I think about it, the government we have at the moment, and this is why I ask questions about the quality of our democracy, the government we have at the moment, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens, all of them promised before the 2020 election that they wouldn't go into coalition with each other. Every single one of them. So, so, so you could actually say that there isn't a single person in this country who voted for this government. In fact, everybody that went to the polls had a written assurance from each of them that they wouldn't go into coalition with each other. How's that democracy? You're clearly in fine fettle. Thanks, man. No, no it's, it's great co- to see... It's coffee you give me. It's great to see that you actually have recovered from the cancer and that you remain fired up. I mean, you, hopefully you'll never lose that. Hopefully not. I mean, I, you see, I said to you at the start of this that when I sit down with you or with some other people who have a lot of respect for, by the way, um, don't know, know many years now, the person who comes and the person who leaves isn't always the person that you talk to. I, physically, I feel great. Um, I'm definitely at a crossroads in my life. I'm 55 now, and I'm very disappointed with some aspects of... of uh, of, with, with, I'm very disappointed with some aspects of, of what I consider to be the way, I've been, the way I'm being treated um, by some people I would have expected a lot more of. Um, and I kind of, you know, you look at your kids and you look at your, your wife and you look at your, the family who are here and the family who are gone and the decisions you've made down through 
the years. And I was kind of, I was kind of a bleeding heart for every bloody cause, you know? There was people come into my office in 2000, you mentioned the year 2007, Paul Quinn, that's your year. Well, people came into my office, waited for me downstairs in reception because they were having difficulty in their workplace. And they actually, the first thing they said to me was they were there looking for me, hoping to bump into me because they thought the only person in the trade union movement that would do anything for them was me. And I did. And then there was the Apollo House thing. I was very hurt by that. Why were you very hurt by that? Um, because I learned a very hard lesson. I learned that sometimes... It's the people that you're trying to help the most who turn on you. And I was turned on. By who? I was turned on by, by, well, I was turned on on social media by, you know, a lot of people in Apollo House. A lot of the, a lot of the helpers who said I was in it for money, who said I stole money. Um, by uh, RTE famously turned on me, which went to court. The less said, I went to the legal process anyway, that was settled. So the less said about that, the better. But um, I, we, I and others went in to try to help vulnerable people who were dying on the streets at Christmas, every previous Christmas for 10 years. And suddenly, by, the, by early January, you know, I was the enemy. Um, Jim Sheridan was the enemy. Glenn Hansard was the enemy. Um, you know, it was radio stations had councillors on. Owen Keegan. Who, by who? By Owen Keegan. By Mannix Flynn. Who was given a spot on The Late Late Show. I was only on The Late Late Show once. Mannix Flynn was given a, a 15-minute uninterrupted interview on The Late Late Show to attack the people who provided the shelter in Apollo, in Apollo House, who I never met, by the way. Um, but that didn't stop him, and it didn't stop RTE giving him a voice. Um, you know, George Hook, me and George had a great uh, ding-dong on the radio that day, so I don't mind that. You know, I don't mind that at all. That's, that was a one-to-one, -one and it was great. It was great radio and great interview, and I, uh, in fairness to George, whatever his obnoxious views were, he got my, my <laughs> equally obnoxious <laughs> views on the day back, and it was great interview, you know. So I don't mind that stuff. But we were turned on. And we were accused of things. Um, I've never taken a, a dishonest shilling of anybody in my life. I'm not a wealthy person. I don't own any property. I've never, I'm not in it for myself. And I look back now uh, at 55 years of age, having survived cancer with some of my dearest family gone. And, you know, I'm in good health, which means I have to provide for myself for a few years to come yet. I don't have largesse built up, you know. And I see a movement turning its back on me, or that's how it feels. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because when you're me and when you're, when you're in a trade union movement and, and, and you, you challenge employers all the time, that's what you do, you know. Um, I like to think in general, in general, I've made a few mistakes maybe, in general I've done so respectfully. And I get more um, respect um, when I go to, for example, to a funeral of the father of an old friend from ESB. We're gone from ESB into 2014. I get more respect from the senior ESB management um, and concern and genuine, you know, goodwill than I do in a movement that I've given my whole life to, that I've sacrificed, made major sacrifices. Why do you think that is? Well, do we have to be careful here because I think people, you, you are... Well, I'm not saying anything about anybody in particular. No. You're in dispute I'm with your making, employer. You yeah, know. I don't want to. I'm, I'm talking about the movement generally. Okay. I, am, I am, yes. But, but we won't go there. Yeah, at I can't. Stage, I won't. Okay. And I, I'm, listen, I'm talking about the movement generally. Okay. I'm talking about the movement generally uh, in terms of the left. You know, it's no secret. Just, just the lack of, the lack of, of solidarity. And I sp I've preached solidarity my whole life and given it. 
and probably looking back, being foolish to some of the people, some of the causes I've given it to. But I have. And let's just say it doesn't all come back. Let's just put it that way. I'm going to finish by referencing something you said early in the interview and something you've said in the last few moments about the different Brendan Ogle who might come to an interview and leave an interview and the one who speaks into the microphone, which has me a little bit worried because the last hour and a quarter, hour and a half or so, I've thought I've been hearing the real Brendan Ogle, that you've been completely frank and open and honest without thinking in all of your answers you've instinctively given them. So have I heard, have all our listeners heard the real Brendan Ogle or what different person will be leaving? No, yeah, I understand where you're coming from. My values do not change. My values on, on democracy, on social solidarity, on housing, on refugees, on anti-racism, on workers' rights, my values do not change. My values, I, sometimes I say, you know, what, and this is, what, this is a difficulty, you see. Sometimes I, sometimes I describe it like this. It isn't what I do, it's who I am. It's where I holiday. It's the football teams I support. It's what I eat. It's who I hang out with. It's not what I do. It's who I am. So my values are my DNA. All you're hearing now is a situation where uh, I'm kind of reflecting uh, at 55 years of age, having been through some personal challenges. I'm kind of reflecting and thinking, maybe I should have been more guarded. Maybe I should have been more selfish. But then you wouldn't have been you. Well, at least I've been me anyway. Yeah, I have. And I didn't even get a chance to talk to you about Cuba or Argentina, where you're just back from, or Celtic, who I know you're fanatical about. But it has been brilliant talking to you and I hope it's going to be for many more years to come and that you continue as an advocate for the things that you believe in. And I agree, we do need people more like you who will speak up to the system. Brendan Ogles, thank you for joining me. Pleasure, Matt. Thank you.